Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Welcome to a special edition of Thank You for Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. Last week, President-elect Biden made an historic announcement to name Lloyd Austin as his nominee for the position of Secretary of Defense. This nomination is unique for two reasons. First, because Austin would be only the third retired general to serve as Secretary of Defense since the passing of the National Security Act of 1947. And second, because if confirmed, Austin would be the first Black American to serve as the Secretary of Defense. Although thank you for your service intended to take a break for the rest of the year, we couldn't let a civil military topic of this magnitude pass without a discussion. The National Security Act of 1947 placed a ban on retired military officers serving in the position of Secretary of Defense for 10 years. In the 2008 NDAA, it was changed to seven years. Congress did this for three primary reasons. First, civilian control. Second, closeness among retired officers with serving officers. And third, because of the need for civilian qualifications. In 1950, facing a series of crises, a failed Secretary of Defense, a post-war budget crisis, the Korean War escalation, and failing confidence in President Truman himself, Truman turned to George Marshall. In 2017, President Trump nominated Jim Mattis, a nomination that many thought was a well-deserved nomination to help keep some of President Trump's own tendencies and lack of national security experience in check. Today, I'm joined by three wonderful colleagues uh, who will give us different perspectives on this important topic. First, Ambassador Eric Edelman. He's an American diplomat who served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Finland, and many other positions in our government. He retired from the U.S. Foreign Service in May 2009 and is a visiting scholar at the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies and the Roger Hertog Distinguished Practitioner in Residence at the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins. Corey Shockey is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Before joining AEI, Dr. Shockey was the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She's had a distinguished career in government, working at the U.S. State Department, U.S. Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House. And finally, Bishop Garrison, who is the co-founder and president of the Rainey Center, a public policy research organization in Washington, D.C. He also serves as director of national security outreach at Human Rights First. He previously served as an interim executive director of the Truman National Security Project and Truman Center for National Policy. One last note I'd like to make. Uh, I also am an unpaid adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Um, two of our board members are Michelle Flournoy and Jay Johnson, both of whom who have been considered for the position of Secretary of Defense. Um, I've spoken to both of their qualifications before, so I'd just like to note that uh, connection. I'd also like to note that I have connections to uh, Lloyd Austin as well through my time at General Dempsey's office as the special advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, where I worked frequently with CENTCOM and some of the other officials. Ambassador Edelman, I would like to turn to you first. Uh, you were a member of the National Defense Strategy Commission in 2018, a bipartisan organization that tried to look at uh, some of the challenges with implementing our new national defense strategy. I know one of the things that you focused on uh, was civil military relations in the Pentagon in 2018. 
What were some of the concerns you identified and how should that shape our thinking today? Well, Jim, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here with uh, Corey and Bishop um, to discuss this really important subject. We did have a section, about two pages uh, of our 82-page report uh, on civil-military relations. I, I should say that the commission was bipartisan. Uh, it was created by an act of Congress, 12 members. Uh, I was co-chair along with uh, former CNO Gary Ruffhead. Six of our members were nominated by the chair uh, of the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, six by the ranking members in the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. And we approached our work actually in a totally nonpartisan manner. If you had sat in our deliberations, you would not have been able to tell who had been nominated by Republicans and who had been nominated by Democrats. And we had a fairly broad consensus that uh, allowed us to produce the report. And one of the things we did find, and this was shared not just across partisan lines, but also with the two retired four stars who served on our commission, uh, retired General Jack Keene, former vice chief of the Army staff, uh, and, um, uh, and Gary Ruffhead, the former CNO, they completely agreed with this uh, recommendation uh, to include this subject and to include the things we said about civil-military relations. And I'll want to read a passage uh, from the report to you, uh, but I would note that it did cause a certain amount of dyspepsia in the uh, Secretary uh, of Defense's front office and, and in the chairman's office. I want to stress that these comments were not directed at them personally. Uh, they were a reflection of our concern about longstanding developments, some of which you wrote about in your New York Times op-ed the other day. And I would similarly want to preface anything I say on this subject by saying none of it has anything to do with General Austin um, as a general officer, as, as a person. Uh, I recognize the historic significance of his uh, nomination. I don't think anyone can take anything away from that. But I still have reservations because of the principles at stake with regard to civilian uh, control of the military. And later on, if you want to talk about it, you, I, I will tell you what position I would take if I were a United States senator and had to consider this. But we said that constructive approaches to addressing any of the challenges the U.S. military confronts must be rooted in healthy civil-military relations. In the course of its evaluation, however, the commission was struck by the relative imbalance of civilian and military voices on critical issues of strategy development and implementation. We came away with a troubling sense that civilian voices were relatively muted on issues at the center of U.S. defense and national security policy, undermining the concept of civilian control. Strong civilian oversight is the central hallmark of U.S. civil-military relations codified in the Constitution and embraced throughout the nation's legislative history. The implementation of the national defense strategy must feature empowered civilians fulfilling their statutory responsibilities. You know, when I was called in at one point by the chairman uh, to have him express to me his displeasure about what we had written, uh, one of the attendees at the meeting was my successor several times removed, uh, John Rood, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the time. And after hearing General Dunford's complaints about why he thought our characterization of civil-military relations was unfair, I said, you know, General Dunford, I said, the person whose nose really ought to be out of joint here is John Rood. I said, because what we're basically saying is that civilians in the Department of Defense have to do their job. And we, we were not recommending any additional statutory authorities for the civilians. We think they already have the authorities, but they've got to stand up and do their jobs and they've got to be in an environment where their, where their voice uh, will be heard and, and their Title X responsibilities uh, respected. Uh, what we've seen over a long period of time, and I would date this going back to the passage of Goldwater Nichols in the mid-80s, has been the growth of very large, very powerful military staffs in the Pentagon. Uh, the staffs of the combatant commanders in particular, uh, but also the growth of the Joint Staff, which was augmented when GIFCOM was disestablished by Secretary Gates and many of the folks who worked in GIFCOM were not discharged or, or sent to other responsibilities. They were just added on to the already rather large uh, joint staff. And, and that does, it creates a numerical imbalance, but it creates a relative imbalance in the weight 
of advice that is being given to the Secretary of Defense and ultimately by the Secretary to the President of the United States. And that is, I think, an enormous challenge for defense policymaking in, in our country. Um, and I do worry that if you, as you suggest, if you make exceptions to the general rule set out in the uh, National Security Act of 1947, you know, if you have enough exceptions to the rule, you don't have a rule anymore. Um, and so for that reason, I'm very worried about uh, granting this waiver, not for any reason having to do with General Austin, but the broader problem that I just described. Now, Corey, I know uh, one thing that we've talked about before is that in addition to any questions of civilian control, some of which are already mitigated by um, norms and professionalism within the armed forces, there are other reasons why you would want a se secretary of defense to be a civilian. Um, can you share with us your thoughts on why that's so important? Sure. You know, the Defense Department's a $740 billion a year business with 2 million employees. And while it is true that many military officers have uh, exquisite managerial and organizational skills, they are not the only people in the country who have those skills, right? The um, descriptions that President-elect Biden made of why he needed to pick General Austin, retired General Austin, were the importance of distributing the vaccine, the importance of diversity in the department, and one other. So if job number one is distribution of the vaccine, first of all, the military is not predominantly doing that. But second of all, hire the head of the post office, hire Jeff Bezos. There are a lot of people in the United States who have those skills and could contribute to it without having the drawbacks that appointing a recently retired military officer bring. And as you rightly suggest, Jim, it's not just civilian control, although that is the most important one, right? Article one gives the Congress the right to raise armies and maintain navies. The expectation in our political system was that you wouldn't have large standing armies in peacetime. And the reason that we became so concerned in 1947, when it was clear we were gonna have large standing forces because of America's emergence as a hegemon of the international order, the concern actually was about civilian control. And if you look at how quickly the norm has evaporated, uh, right? 47 years between the first military nominee and the second recently retired nominee, and then four years between the next one. I think it really does show that what has happened in the meantime is that the public regard for our military has remained incredibly high, but the public regard for other institutions of the country has been badly diminished. And it's actually good for democracy in America that people don't think the military is the only functional organization in the country. And just as it's important, for example, uh, for Democrats to nominate a Democratic Party member for cabinet positions to show that Democrats have a lot of talent in that regard. It's also important to nominate civilians to remind people that our beautiful, broad, diverse society has all sorts of talent in it. The, the sole repository of people we should thank for their service are not military people, wonderful as they are. The other thing I would say is about diversity of experience. I really applaud the Biden administration for the gender and racial diversity they are showcasing in their cabinet. It matters for the country. It matters for little kids and their dreams. It matters for getting better problem solving teams. But diversity of experience also really matters. And it especially matters for the American military, which if somebody spends 40 years in the military, they are gonna have a similar kind of education and a similar kind of professional experience to their peers. And having diversity 
at the top of that organization actually is great. Somebody who's had to run a healthcare program, somebody who's had to balance a budget, somebody who's had to negotiate uh, salaries with their employees, somebody who's actually had to defend the wars we're fighting in public in front of a hostile Congress, uh, somebody who's had to compromise on huge things they consider important. I worked in General Powell's staff in the early 1990s, and he once told me that the most important preparation he had for being chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was having worked a year in the Office of Management and Budget as a lieutenant colonel. Because what that taught him is what the military looks like to the rest of the government, which is a great big slush fund of people who get raises every year and all the money they want for what they think is important for the country while everybody else scrambles and has bake sales. And there's really something to that. And so there are a whole bunch of skills that go into uh, being an effective secretary. And I think much admiration as I have for Lloyd Austin, I think the country would be better served by enforcing the norm and having somebody who is not so recently retired and has a broader diversity of experience in the job. So, you know, for these reasons that Ambassador Edelman and Dr. Shockey have laid out and a few others, this has been extremely rare. It was only in these very unique circumstances in the uh, wake of World War II and the Korean War at this time of real crisis. And in 2017, when many scholars looked at this and said, we have the least experienced national security president in history, and this would be an important balance for him. Those have been the only times we've done that. And I, I will you know, point out, I was a little disappointed in President-elect Biden's argument in The Atlantic because the only real reason he laid out for a waiver in that argument was, well, they gave it to Mattis, so we should give one to Austin too. Um, but I do want to point out that uh, Bishop Garrison did make a much stronger case, I think, for why this might be a unique moment and why we might want to do this. So, uh, Bishop, I'd like to turn it over to you to sort of summarize your argument on why you think at this historical moment, why it might be so important to nominate Lloyd Austin. Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me on such a uh, prestigious panel. It's uh, some uh, heavy hitters here, and I, I, I appreciate being included in this group. Let's start from the beginning, folks. This is not ideal. I don't think anyone is trying to make the argument that having a, a fairly recently retired uh, general being nominated for this position is an ideal thing. And I mentioned, as, uh, as Jim mentioned my piece, I mentioned at the uh, outset of that piece that it, this nomination deserves a very rigorous debate. And I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, Congress has the ability to provide a waiver and the Senate uh, must provide their consent before we ever see the general in, in the position. So let, let's not take away from the, the overall process of this uh, as well. There should be a rigorous debate. But at the same time, as uh, the ambassador and his, uh, Mishaki have, uh, have laid out here, this is a historic nomination, but it cannot be made or viewed within a vacuum. Uh, we can talk about how historic it is to have a black man nominated, but why would the president go beyond the bounds of process and uh, traditional law in order to to make this exact nomination? I think that's something that that deserves our discussion. It deserves uh, an opportunity to to understand why we should potentially to a lot of people's point, maybe even risk further erosion of the self-mail divide uh, on this stuff. The issue is that we're looking at a time in which we have a severe lack of representation of diverse people within uh, the military. I mentioned in my piece that about 6.7 percent of SES career staff are, are African-American, whereas 20 percent are represented in the total of career staffs, uh, individuals at DOD. We're also looking at what's happening in the ranks of the uh, of the military. We're at an uh, unprecedented time in which we've seen white supremacy and uh, and Confederate uh, commemorations uh, percolate into into the ranks regularly. We're looking at a ten year high in this country of of uh, attacks uh, connected to to white supremacy, white violent white extremism, white nationalism. 
this is a rare opportunity to have an individual that is capable. He has been the first African-American or first black uh, COCOM commander. He's been the first one to lead a corps into battle. This is an individual who has consistently been forced to bust through these barriers of race and diversity within our, our highest ranks and has done so and has done so honorably. This is a historic moment and a very specific time in which we need that type of leader in this position. And I know everyone goes, well, yeah, I'm all about diversity. I, I, I completely agree. Why can't we find someone else? Because quite frankly, the, the pool is so incredibly thin. You look at the number of uh, senior ranks right now and you see two of 41 are black currently. Only four in total uh, identify for uh, senior flag officers as minorities. And yes, I know that uh, and we can speak about this and I know we will, that uh, women have seen a great deal of misogyny and had to go through a, a lot of these issues themselves and overcome this type of adversity. But when you look at what's happening for a certain degree from the racial side of this and the moment that we find ourselves post George Floyd, post uh, Breonna Taylor in this country, this is a unique opportunity uh, to step up and, and at least in part address some of these ills and address some of these issues that through having someone uh, of race. And then you can say, well, what about someone like Jay Johnson? What about people that are, are civilians outside? Well, you also cannot take away from the idea that the president-elect has a particular special relationship a close relationship and has for over a decade with uh, Lloyd Austin. He's he did mention that in uh, uh, in the Atlantic piece. He's mentioned that as he spoke about uh, the general's relationship with uh, Bo Biden, who was one of his former staffers. He's talked about the relationship of uh, bringing the uh, majority of troops and resources back to Iraq as the uh, vice president working very closely with uh, General Austin. So there is a natural relationship there. And to be quite frank, black men are not a monolith. We we are not just easily interchangeable. There are certain aspects to the general's personality and specifically his experiences, as I've laid them out, that make him uniquely qualified in this moment under this president elect to do exactly what he's going to do. And yes, of course, we can look at the civilian ranks, too. But as I've laid out in that piece as well for just security, those are frankly thin. You don't have representation from a racial perspective in the intelligence community. You don't. It's five, Fortune 500s, you're looking currently at only about five CEOs that make up for one percent of all Fortune 500 CEOs. So from what talent pool, if we're going to do this and we're going to look at a diverse candidate, are we to pull from? The truth of the matter is historically that it is the military that has provided upward mobility, particularly for uh, African-Americans from blacks to find the level of successes we see in Lloyd Austin. And it gives us hope that we see someone of his caliber, of his experiences to be nominated this position. Again, I am not advocating that this is a great thing that we have to do or that we should be considering. I think it absolutely deserves the rigorous debate that my colleagues here have laid out. But let's have that rigorous debate and then let's rely on Congress in their processes to make the right decision. If they believe that the erosion of the civil military divide is too great or they believe that uh, there is another candidate that can uh, take on the mantle for which was laid out for Lloyd Austin, then they will show that through their representative uh, voting. They will not provide the waiver or they will not uh, confirm him in the seat. But let's give this uh, this process an opportunity to play out, because as we've noted, he is an incredible American who has uh, served his country honorably and has uh, has the skill set and the ability to take on this role. So let's have a, a much more robust further discussion about this. All right. Thanks, Bishop. But I do want to turn back uh, to Corey, who I saw uh, perk up a little bit uh, when you made a uh, the point about the the pool. I'm I'm curious, uh, Corey, after hearing Bishop's argument, um, what you think about uh, about that case that the pool just isn't uh, as robust or diverse as it should be. So Bishop was making the argument that because black people are underrepresented in our military ranks, that's a major reason we should put a black person as the civilian head of the organization. 
And I'm... It's one of the pieces. It's one of the pieces. Not the only one, but it's, it is uh, is a part of the representation discussion. That's yes. the moment at which I think Jim was commenting on my expression, that I, I'm unpersuaded by that as I am, because I think actually that's the wrong talent pool. You want to represent to that, but the secretary doesn't need to come from that talent pool. In fact, ideally ought not to come from that talent pool in order to be able to force the organization to do better than it does. But it's not about that talent pool. It's about it's it's about what those individuals see within the top leader of the department. It's about what the military has the ability, those members that are one of six are black in the United States military. For them to see the secretary of defense as a black man or woman, but in this case, a black man is incredibly powerful. I agree. It's incredibly powerful. Pull a black member of this House Armed Services Committee. Pull a mayor. Pull a- Who? There, there are two senators. There are two. It's Cory Booker and Tim Scott. Those are the only two black senators in the Senate. Kamala Harris is about to be vice president. There is it. There, who is it? Yeah, Ambassador Edelman, go ahead and chime in. So I think Bishop makes a powerful argument, and and I I hear it, and it's one reason why I think Senator Duckworth has actually articulated what I believe is the correct position for members of the United States Senate to take, which is to say, you know, if it comes to a confirmation vote, I intend to vote uh, for General Austin. But we don't have a normal confirmation here because we have to, as members of the United States Senate, waive the legal requirement that a military officer be retired for seven years, which, by the way, is already a a decrement from what it was when the law was first passed in 1947, when it was a decade. And that I'm going to vote against the, you know, against the waiver, because I think it's important principle of civil military relations. I think that is the right uh, you know, answer uh, to the conundrum that that Bishop, you know, poses here. Again, I don't think anyone can take away the importance, you know, historically of this uh, nomination and the potential it has uh, to, you know, represent both to the uh, armed forces and to the country as a whole, the uh, African-American population in our country. But I think the the problem is the context here. You know, if if this were going on in a circumstance where we had not had the Mattis waiver four years ago, this would look different. Uh, If we weren't dealing with a circumstance in which, as we said in the National Defense Strategy Commission report, damage has been done over a period of years to the civilian defense competence in the office of the Secretary of Defense. If you read the histories of the uh, office of OSD, the official histories, since the formation of the Unified Department of Defense by the National Security Act in 1947, the entire history of the Office of Secretary of Defense is building enough civilian capacity uh, in the in the OSD precincts to allow it to allow the Secretary of Defense to have effective control over the military institution, and that body. That is to say, the Office of Secretary of Defense, particularly in the policy realm where I served as undersecretary, has been badly, badly damaged by 15 years of uh, the buildup of these staffs, which already had created a problem, and now four years of uh, damage inflicted during the uh, Trump administration. I'm sorry, not an ambassador. <laughs> I apologize. Can I ask one quick question in this? Sure. We're talking about four years. He's been out for four years. Versus seven. If if he had just been on another two and a half, three years, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Do we feel that this is potentially uh, the time limit is an arbitrary one? I mean, shouldn't it be more about having the actual debate about who he is as an individual and the the point and time in which we find uh, the defense infrastructure versus just saying like 10 years, seven years, four years? The time limit is, of course, you know, it's arbitrary. It was 10 years. It's been moved to seven. But it represents something, Bishop, that I don't think is arbitrary, which is the notion that, and and this is not something that is because people are bad or ill-intentioned or anything else. This is a function of how human beings act. If, if tomorrow 
Joe Biden took leaves of leave of his senses and decided to pull, uh, you know, General Austin's nomination and say, you know, I need a Republican in my cabinet. I'm going to nominate Eric Edelman to be Secretary of Defense. What would I do? You know, what? Who would I turn to for advice? I I, I would be turning to my Rolodex, and I would be going through it and you know, working through all my professional associates over my 30-year government career to find people who I thought could help me either by taking positions in the Department of Defense or advising me on the key issues. And General Austin is going to turn to his Rolodex of 40 years, you know, which has now been, you know, four years ago, he, he retired, but it's basically 40 years of professional military service, as you point out, honorable and distinguished. But the people he's going to turn to are, are, are going to be people he knows, and it's going to be U.S. Army folks. And this is exacerbated by the fact that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, is U.S. Army. The director of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is U.S. Army. And so you're going to have a coterie of U.S. Army officers. Now, General Austin, I know when he was announced by Vice President Biden, said he's aware of the requirements of you know, civilian control, and he's going to try and take, you know, steps to to deal with this and more power to him. I'm just saying it runs counter to people's nature to do that. And it's it's very difficult to do that. And I hope we do in this discussion get to what mitigation measures we might uh, think about um, here, because I do think, you know, it's more than likely that he's going to be confirmed. And we ought to think about how do we mitigate potential damage to civil military relations. So the, the one thing I would note out um, just on this point, because the, the history here is sort of illuminating the uh, the seven year requirement is more arbitrary than the ten year. So the the ten year that originally was passed, as I noted, um, was laid out for those few reasons: civilian control, civilian qualifications, and closeness. And that's you know that's one thing that's lost. There there is a difference between four years out and seven years out in terms of the relationships you have still on active duty, in terms of the the time you've had to to develop other relationships. And that change to seven years, incidentally, was made by one representative in the House. Uh, who added it into the NDAA. Um, it was only in the House bill. It was not in the Senate. He made it for five years with no public debate whatsoever. It was changed to seven in committee. Uh, and there's no legislative history or record. We've been trying to dig this down over the last few weeks. So it really was, um, you know, sort of an arbitrary change that took place um, to, to weaken and erode the very same thing that we had uh, in 10 years without the debate then. And so I do think it's important um, to, to have some of that debate now. Jim, um, could, I, could I just add one thing? I, I absolutely. Really, I, uh, to make the point that this is not about General Austin or about the U.S. Army, I, I would point out that this was a challenge for General Mattis as well. And it wasn't as if General Mattis didn't understand that this waiver of the law required, you know, meant that he had to, you know, have certain, you know, uh, responsibilities as the civilian head of the Department of Defense. But the circumstance he found himself in was retired Marine Secretary of Defense, you know, Marine Joint you know, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marine Director of the Joint Staff. And so you had this coterie of Marines around General Mattis. And while General Mattis, I think, did yeoman service to the nation by holding off some of the most unhinged instincts of the current president of the United States. And we all owe him an enormous debt of thanks for that. I think as a manager of the Department of Defense, he was not successful for a variety of reasons. And one of the main ones was that he ended up being cocooned in a front office that was basically made up of Marine and Navy officers. Um, latch on to that because I want to identify three specific mistakes Secretary Mattis made that I think somebody who had broader experience than spending the entirety of their career in the military would not have made. The first was permitting President Trump to sign the Muslim ban in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon. He just wasn't a politician, didn't see that coming, wasn't sure, didn't feel he was the president's peer to say, you are not doing that here. Um, and I think somebody who was less deferential to the commander in chief, who had a political, viewed themselves as having a political base of their own, might have made a different choice. Of course, that person might never have been picked for secretary, but that's a different point. 
The second mistake Secretary Mattis made was thinking that the national defense strategy was his most important strategy document, when in fact the budget is your most important strategy document as the Secretary of Defense. And uh, allowing so much latitude to his deputy to shape the budget is something I think a civilian CEO of a company would not do um, because they understand strategy in a different way than people coming out of the military universe do. And the third was Secretary Mattis. Again, understandably, I'm incredibly sympathetic to his motivation, but not speaking in public on the record about military issues, about the wars we were fighting, about the whole host of issues in order that he not goad the president into intemperate reactions. Again, somebody who had a political base of their own uh, or the political skills to threaten the president with uh, resignation rather than just resigning, I think would have made different choices in those circumstances. And I think different choices in those three circumstances would have been preferable to the choices that Secretary Mattis made and somebody who had different um, experience would have brought different skills to the undertaking. Can I just say that uh, quickly that I think the three of us are in uh, passionate agreement uh, about some of these. When you mentioned the uh, the Hall of Heroes, that was the first thing when the ambassador was speaking that, that popped in my head as a, as a, a misstep. Um, and, I, and I'll say that from my own personal experiences, having uh, dealt with retired uh, uh, four star in, in that level, uh, the, the, these arguments aren't, aren't lost on me, particularly when you talk about um, reaching out into those uh, those pool, that pool of individuals that they have to lean on uh, that are going to be themselves more likely than not either still, I mean, potentially still active or at the very least somewhat recently retired. Uh, staffers that they have or, or peers that they have worked uh, very closely with. I think that is something that needs to be addressed, but can also be navigated around because we have learned from uh, Mattis and from others uh, in, in recent history that that is a major issue, particularly if you try to um, bring any of those retired uh, staffers with no disrespect to, to great men like Jim Golby here. But if you try to bring some of those uh, retired staffers into the front office or into a position in which they can give or provide uh, uh, direct counsel uh, to someone like uh, Lloyd Austin. I, th- I I do worry about that. I think that could be problematic because they're going to be much more uh, worried potentially about making sure they do right by him versus making sure that everything is transparent as it should be and that he's hearing all of the bad stuff that he needs to in order to make uh, the best possible decisions. Uh, I, I think that is something, however, that can be navigated, that you surround him around very uh, sharp, very savvy um political appointees who understand uh, some of the dynamics uh, that, that we've laid out that will understand them better than someone arguably has been a, a career officer. So uh, we are running short on time, but I do want to turn to this question that we've been skirting around here a little bit, this question of mitigation. If General Austin becomes Secretary Austin, how should he approach the job and what steps can he take uh, to ensure that some of the, the worst concerns don't take place. So I'd like to turn to Ambassador Edelman for your thoughts on this, and then anyone else who has has time will let them chime in as well. Well, I think Bishop put his finger on the first one. Um, populating the Office of the Secretary of Defense with experienced defense professionals and relying on the uh, best and most senior uh, civil servants in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and demonstrating very early on um, that he has confidence in them and that he is going to be listening to their advice as much as that of the joint staff uh, will be very, very important. And the signals he sends will be very, very important. I think uh, who he recruits uh, to be uh, the assistant to the secretary, the chief of staff position, will be extremely important. Um, if he recruits somebody like a Robert Rangel, who served as the chief of staff to both Don Rumsfeld and and Bob Gates, and who had been um, staff director for many years of the House Armed Services Committee, now that will send a, a very, very important signal. Um, if he picks somebody for that job who's a recently retired 
uh, U.S. Army officer, because that's in his comfort zone, that will send a very different you know, signal to the uh, OSD employees. Something that may give him pause, it would give almost anybody pause, I would think, would be, is he going to hire a lot of the, quote, usual suspects? Essentially, the universe of people I just described, by and large, are protégés of Michel Flournoy. Is he going to bring on people who are closely associated with Michelle, who was clearly one of the other, uh, you know, finalists in the in the hunt for this for this job? Now, some people might find that very uncomfortable. I don't know whether General Austin will find that uncomfortable, but it'll be another uh, signal about how he's uh, thinking about this. And then I would also say that uh, for the National Security Advisor for Jake Sullivan, it will be imperative to have either a deputy national security advisor who is very senior experience in the Department of Defense or a senior director who has very um, you know, long and, and senior experience uh, in the Department of Defense. In that sense, something like what we had in Bush 43 when the senior director for defense was Frank Miller and the senior director for nuclear and nonproliferation issues with Bob Joseph, two longtime, very senior former deputy assistant secretaries of defense, you know, with a lot of years of service in OSD. So if Jake Sullivan picks someone like Jim Miller, former undersecretary of defense to be deputy national security advisor and senior director for defense, that sends a signal. And I think that helps mitigate some of this. Okay. Bishop Garrison, do you have any uh, final thoughts on this point? Yeah, I, I, again, I think we agree. And I think uh, it's something we've all already hit on to to an extent. This is about a, a coalition of leadership. What is the rest of the Defense par- Department going to look like? Um, I think it's going to be important that you have uh, some some fresh blood. And I think it's going to be important for for innovative thought. And I think it's going to be important that you do have some uh, some old hands uh, some uh, well-known uh, voices and names within the defense community that can help uh, keep the ship steady. Um, when you talk about uh, the NSC, I think uh, the um, ambassador has already kind of uh, you know laid out some of the, the major positions. But I also think that it's going to be critical for the NSC and the department to have a very strong working relationship. I know in uh, past administrations, the Obama administration, there were some issues there about a very active, some would argue overly reactive uh, NSC. Uh, I think it's going to be important to uh, to right size that relationship. I think it's going to be important to right size the relationship with the Hill, uh, especially on a lot of these different issues. We not not only the budget, but I think the budget is uh, one of, if not the most important one. Uh, you're also talking about the uh, sexual assault scandals and all of the issues that we've uh, seen in the military ranks. So just this past week, we've had a uh, 14 uh, commanders removed at Fort Hood. So that's one of the first things in the in the new year that the Secretary of Defense is going to have to to navigate. So you're going to have to have uh, a, an assistant secretary for legislative affairs who and, and two directors, both on the House and Senate side, who absolutely get it, who know how to uh, uh, walk the corridors of the uh, of the hill of the, the Capitol of the buildings and and has the gravitas uh, has the legitimacy in Washington, D.C. to to help navigate through some of this stuff. And then finally, to the uh, ambassador's point as well, it's going to really matter on who you have on some, in some of these undersecretary positions and service secretary positions. You're going to need smart, thoughtful leaders who are politically savvy, given the bevy of issues that the department's going to be facing. And it's, it's not just in ending the forever wars or continuing the, the CT fight. It's in uh, research and, de- and uh, development, research and engineering. It's in what are we going to do in uh, retaining and recruiting top talent as talent pools dwindle of, uh, of um, eligible uh, uh, younger folks within the United States. Like you're getting hit by all sides. And I think uh, it's important that we have someone strong on top, just as important as it is that that individual has subordinate leadership that is beyond capable and some of the greatest talent that, uh, that we can find right now to serve. Thanks very much. You know, one other thing that uh, we haven't really discussed much in the debate so far, but that, uh, you know, I found to be important in my own research is that not only does this matter in the Pentagon and in the White House, but it is going to shape our culture and our politics in broader ways that will have lasting impacts. As uh, Ambassador Edelman pointed out before, um, it it is not even clear to me that we would be having this discussion had we not made the exception in 2017 
uh, for Secretary Mattis. I think it changed uh, the potential pool of candidates and the way people thought about this uh, in ways that they they perhaps didn't think through uh, fully when they made that nomination, or, or perhaps they did, and they believe that the risk was worth it. But the reason I want to point this out is because what many Americans will see, um, what many service members will see, are two big messages. One is retired general officer is SecDef. And uh, there's some research by Heidi Urban, Risa Brooks, and Mike Robinson that right now shows some alarming findings that among cadets at West Point, a majority, I think it's around 56 or 60 percent, believe that to be a good secretary of defense, you have to have military experience. And so it further erodes uh, this deference to civilian authority. And particularly if this gets solidified, it will it can do that. The same type of thing, I think, can happen in society where people may not see uh, those messages or they may begin to uh you know, sort of fundamentally question these longer standing norms about civilian control in ways that we can't necessarily control. And they may start to interpret these in in partisan ways. Some of the research I've done with Peter Fever shows that when we ask people questions about norms, like, are you willing uh, to let retired generals speak out to criticize uh, the president? If you change that term from the president to President Obama or President Trump, you get very different responses from partisans. And you'll see Democrats unwilling to let retired generals criticize President Obama, but very willing to criticize President Trump and vice versa for uh, Republicans. So I do think that there are some, even on top of the issues we we talked about in depth, this can have some broader cultural attitudinal effects that, that could shape things uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. Jim, could um, I comment on that for a second? Absolutely. Please do. So I agree with you, and I, I I think that an apolitical military is you know important part of our constitutional order. And Corey sort of adverted to this in her you know opening remarks. The founding fathers were very very concerned that a standing army had been inimical to democracies, uh, and uh, that the military historically had played a role in putting an end to democracies. And so I think it's a fundamental part of our constitutional order. We've done an enormous amount to try and inculcate in our officer corps, certainly since the Civil War, that they are meant to be an apolitical military. That's good for the military because you don't get the kind of political generals you had in the Civil War who frequently were disasters uh, and ended up getting a lot of people killed. And uh, I think we want to preserve having an apolitical military. This uh, decision and the prospect of another waiver, I worry, is part of a longer term trend that is weakening the guardrails against the politicization of the military. Uh, You see it in our presidential campaigns now going back to 1992, and I abhor this. Each, you know, quadrennial election cycle features both parties trotting out their you know, generals and admirals, they're flag officers who've endorsed the candidate of their party. And I've seen this at work. I've seen the insidious way this works inside government because new administrations come in and think that the previous generals were Clinton generals or Bush generals or Obama generals. And that's not good for the military uh, to be seen uh, in that light. But if the norm is eroded, as Jim, you suggested in your New York Times op-ed, do general officers start changing their behavior in anticipation that one of the future jobs you might get when you retire is to be Secretary of Defense or Under Secretary of Defense, as we have now? We have uh, someone performing the duties of Secretary of Defense who is a relatively recent military retiree. Um, th- that's what really worries me. Um, we're chipping away at the fundament of professionalism in our military. And we're trying to, you know, make them into politicians when they're not. And the consequences in the long term, I think, could be very deleterious to to our constitutional democracy. 
if I could just add something to that, because I actually back in 2018, I think it is for Just Security, I wrote a piece in which I said I was a part of the problem when it came to uh, politicizing retired generals, because I was had been on uh, two uh, presidential cycles in which we actively go out and we try to get endorsements. So you try to get the longest list and you, you know, you try to get as much brass as possible. And I think that's wrong. I do agree that we that fundamentally as a national security apparatus, as a society, we should get away from that uh, for some of the uh, the issues that the ambassador just laid out. But I, I also think uh, as we can uh, continue down this road, that this could be this nomination can be an opportunity to not only set uh, new norms moving forward about the way we address these issues, but uh, quite frankly, if we want to go further and advocate for Congress to codify them and put them into law, we should do it. I think this is an opportunity to have a major discussion around this issue because this is such a, again, a historic nomination that cannot be viewed in a, a vacuum. It cannot be viewed in a bubble. There is very specific things that are taking place in this moment in society that really must be engaged at that, excuse me, at the highest levels. So again, I think we need to have a process that plays out because the president-elect has a prerogative in which he or she, in this case, uh, President-elect Biden, can nominate who they want to be in this position. And it is incumbent on Congress to go through their processes to determine whether or not they will ultimately consent to that. That's why we have it there. And I think while we're doing this again, we need to have this discussion about, okay, what other types of gateways can we place in this process to determine whether or not this is something we ever want to happen again or it's something that should be so incredibly rare. It basically only happens once a generation. I think what we have in place does not denote that it has been a tradition in which we've abided by that for a long time. I think we can add uh, more, quote unquote, barriers into it that determine whether or not that's uh, the way it goes in the future. Thanks uh, to you for that. I, I would note that uh, Corey Shockey, unfortunately, had to to drop off for another engagement. But I want to thank uh, all my guests. Uh, Ambassador Edelman, uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. I know it's been a long time coming, uh, but we're thrilled to have you on. Uh, Bishop, thanks so much for coming. And again, uh, Dr. Corey Shockey, uh, who was uh, effervescent and uh, illuminating as always. I do hope as this process goes forward that it does not occur in a vacuum and that we do bring all these considerations, whether it's race, uh, partisan polarization, the civil military erosion that's taking place, as well as the potential for uh, political violence uh, that is taking place and how all of these trends uh, may interact with one another in our society. I think it's, uh, it's an important debate for us to be having now, um, particularly after the last four years uh, and some of the uh, flouting of norms uh, and legal traditions that we've seen. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with your friends on social media or give us a good review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you want to hear more from us, please log on to the CSIS webpage and look uh, for the Thank You for Your Service page. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Thank You for Your Service. 